The Immortal Game is a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year and is available in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 26 Guinness, O'Grady, and Me I went to my office. Some new business had come in that seemed closer to my speed. Employee background checks. So I did what I could with the phone to get the ball rolling. The client was yet another high-tech software firm, and it didn't take much checking to find that their candidate for VP of Marketing had a little problem with sexual harassment. Although no one in any official capacity would speak for the record, an HR director at a company where he had worked let slip that another ex-employee might share a tale or two. Turned out the guy had taken his direct report sailing on the bay to celebrate the completion of a project, and with the benefit of a few wet ones down the hatch, had attempted some maneuvers with female employees that didn't have much to do with steering the boat. I took it as far as I could without leaving the office, and then called the ambulance company where O'Grady worked. The dispatcher told me that O'Grady was off, and the best place to look for him at this time of day was a bar. That was a search I could really work up some enthusiasm for, but before I set out, I called Duckworth and made an appointment to meet him after he finished the early show at the Stigmata. I knew from the paramedics at the shooting range that the best place to look for O'Grady was the Rat and Raven. I'd been there a few times and had read in one of the San Francisco weeklies that it had been selected best bar to get hit in the head with a dart while coming out of the men's room in the annual best of issue. As that dubious distinction suggested, it was a somewhat cramped place modeled loosely along the lines of an English pub. They had an excellent selection of beer on tap, however, and that and the lure of being able to claim you were going out for a little R&R proved difficult to pass up for its young, mainly working-class clientele. It was located on 24th Street in the heart of a popular neighborhood known as Noe Valley. I asked the driver of the cab I took from the office to wait while I checked in the bar for O'Grady, but as soon as I stepped out, I spotted him through the window at a table near the front. I paid off the cabbie and went inside. Very few people there were heeding the Surgeon General's warning about smoking, and if he had anything to say about listening to Jimi Hendrix at high volume, they were pretty much ignoring the hell out of that too. O'Grady was sitting on a stool at a high table with a group of five people, three men and two women. Several were wearing paramedic uniforms, and they were all nursing a pint of dark beer. The foamy remnants of a pitcher of Guinness Stout stood in the center of the table. O'Grady had a flush on his face, and he was telling a story in a loud voice between drags on his cigarette. He said, So I asked him how it happened. Now your man, he's in too much pain to talk. And your woman, well, she knows her husband blames her, and she don't want to say anything that will add to her troubles. Quit building it up, Ronan, said a man sitting across from O'Grady. Just tell us what happened. O'Grady smiled and took a big swallow of beer. He set his glass down and looked around the table with an amused expression. Well, as I told you, they were an older couple. The wife still liked to use that aerosol spray that comes in a can. She's in the WC getting ready for the night out, but she can't get the hairspray to work. It's clogged, you see. She's shaking the can, shaking the can, and still nothing comes out. 
Finally, she gets the idea to ream out the nozzle with a pin. She does that, but then she gets to worrying that the spray will come out too fast. So instead of chancing it on her hair, she lifts up the lid of the toilet and aims it into the bowl. It sprays out fine, and she puts down the lid and finishes getting ready. Now the husband has been pacing outside in the hallway, puffing away on his cigar. He has to take the devil's own crap, and the wife has been to the bathroom for nearly an hour. Finally she comes out, and he rushes past her, drops his trousers and settles onto the can. But there's no ashtray about C, and his cigar ash has gotten very long, so he parts his legs and flicks it down between his thighs. Well, the ash is burning, and it ignites the hairspray that the wife has sprayed into the bowl. It goes up like a fireball, and whether from the force of the explosion or from the pain, the husband launches off the toilet and hits his head on the edge of the cabinet above him. And that is how when I arrived, I found your man with third-degree burns all over his arse, his pants around his ankles, and a four-inch gash in his head. O'Grady's companions pounded the table with their glasses and laughed appreciatively. I had to chuckle myself. O'Grady downed the rest of his beer, and finding the amount remaining in the pitcher insufficient to meet his needs, slipped off his stool and went up to the bar for a refill. I came up beside him and said, This round's on me, Ronan. O'Grady turned sharply and stared at me a little bleary-eyed. August, he said, slapping me on the back. I'm going to look under the bed tonight before I go to sleep. The way you keep popping up, I won't be surprised to find you there. I smiled. The last time was a coincidence. This time I went looking for you. I wanted to talk to you about the woman you picked up at the hotel. She's dead, August. I know. I thought you could tell me more about how she died. Was she a particular friend of yours? No, no friend at all, but she was important to a case I've been working on. If you read the paper today, you know what it's about. It's mostly over, but I wanted to tie up the loose ends. I don't mind talking, if you don't mind listening. But since you're buying, why not get two pictures? One for us, and the other for that pack of troublemakers at the table. I bought two pictures, as O'Grady suggested, and we took ours to a corner table by the window. O'Grady poured the Guinness slowly, being careful to let the foam settle just so, and then took a sip from his glass. It's crap, he pronounced. What do you mean, I said. I thought all you first-generation turf gobblers love this stuff. Jesus above, don't be calling me a turf gobbler. That's reserved for the hicks, as you would say, from outside of Dublin, and most especially for people from Cork. I'm direct from Dublin, as I think I've told you. Anyway, the problem is not with Guinness in general, but with this Guinness in particular. It gets ruined coming over. It tastes nothing like what you get from a pub in Ireland. At least it's not in cans. Now you're blaspheming. So what does he want to know in return for your beer? Well, I'm not sure. Maybe you could just tell me what happened after you left the hotel. I gather she didn't die in the ambulance. No, she didn't. But she certainly tried. She stopped breathing almost as soon as we had her downstairs, and we had to put her on the respirator. You saw me give her the shot in the hotel room. Yes. That was something called nailing. It's a drug that neutralizes the narcotic effect of heroin. If you give it to someone quickly enough, it will bind with the heroin in the bloodstream and bring the patient out of the coma. It works so well at times that a patient can wake up angry and frustrated because you completely destroyed his high. It's ironic. You have someone who almost died from an overdose and he's already craving another fix.
but that's not what happened with Terry McCullough. No, she had too much dope in her system for too long a period. That was why her breathing stopped. In high doses, heroin has a paralytic effect on the respiratory response. Still, we kept her going with the respirator and started an alien IV drip, so she had a fighting chance. I was a bit surprised when I heard that she had died at the hospital. Why? O'Grady took out a penknife and scraped idly at the wooden table. Oh, he said, a couple of reasons. The first is that in spite of all your 1960s rock stars and such, ODing on heroin, not that many people die from an overdose these days if they receive medical attention. So the odds were in her favor, even if we did get to her late. The second is that she seemed to me to have stabilized by the time we got her to the hospital. I thought she might have turned the corner. What happened then? Why didn't she pull through? O'Grady set the knife aside and picked up his glass. He swirled the beer and looked down at it thoughtfully. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I thought the odds of her living were better than dying. But they weren't so much better that I would have bet money on it. And I don't mean to imply that the hospital staff mucked up her treatment. But given the circumstances, there were one or two other things I can imagine that might have tipped the scales against her. Okay, let's have them. Well, it occurred to me later. There might have been some other drug mixed in with the heroin. Some people do speedballs, which is a mixture of heroin and cocaine. The problem in treating a speedball overdose is that naline has no effect on the cocaine. Once you suppress the effects of the heroin, the cocaine comes blasting through with a vengeance. But nobody dies of a cocaine overdose. Sure they do especially if their body's been weakened from a disease or a congenital defect. And there you have my other idea. It's possible the girl had an underlying medical problem that compounded the overdose. In the end, her heart just stopped. Could be she already had a cardiopulmonary defect. I shook my head. From what I saw of her, she was pretty damn vigorous. But how could we find out for sure? I mean about other drugs or medical problems. I'm surprised at you, August. Wait for the autopsy, of course. That or talk to the hospital staff. They might have run blood tests for the drugs or detected other health problems. I like the hospital angle. You took her to Mount Zion, right? You chummy with anyone on their staff? What? Are you joking? I know all that ER staff. Penny Waller. She's a particular friend of mine at Mount Zion. Great. How's to take a quick trip over to Mount Zion and talk to her? Right now? There's no chance of that, man. I see enough of emergency rooms without using my free time to visit them. It took some arm twisting and the promise of Morgana Stout, but eventually I managed to get O'Grady bundled into a cab headed in the direction of the hospital. We pulled up in the broad drive of the emergency room entrance, and I paid off the driver. Ronan jumped out and strode through the automatic doors to a reception desk just inside. When I caught up to him, he had already established that Penny Waller was in a staff lounge a short way up the corridor. He bowled through the lounge door without knocking. It opened on a narrow, brightly lit room that had a glass-topped coffee table and a pair of worn couches covered in green plaid. At the back was a kitchenette with a sink, coffee maker, and a tiny refrigerator. The only person in the room was a bored-looking woman with short hair dyed a shade that only occurs in nature, on fire engines. She was wearing an austere hospital pantsuit that didn't completely obscure a lush figure. Her eyes were a startling china blue. She had a silver stud in her left nostril, 
and she was sitting on a couch using a slight overbite to good advantage on a juicy red apple. She looked to be in her mid-twenties, and the tag on her breast read, Penny Waller, RN. She took one look at O'Grady and said, Scat! Shoo! Go away! I'm on my break. Don't you dare bring any business to me. Relax, darling, said O'Grady. You can see that I'm not in uniform. The fact of the matter is, we're here for a small favor, and it has nothing to do with new patients. Waller eyed us skeptically. I can smell the beer on your breath from here, Ronan. This isn't another one of your crazy scavenger hunts, is it? The things you paramedics think of when you get drinking. Do you have an x-ray of a guy with a gerbil up his butt, Penny? Do you have some of the pubic hair they shaved off the mare before his hernia operation, Penny? Sheesh. You guys need to grow up. Who's your friend there, anyway? If O'Grady was the least bit embarrassed, he didn't show it. He dropped on the couch across from Waller. His name is August Ridden, Penny dear. He's a great drinker, a mediocre jazz bass player, and a bad detective. The terrible thing is, he makes more money from the third than the second. The result is a set of warped priorities. Rather than drinking or playing bass, he fritters his time away chasing clues. Waller put the apple down on the table. She looked up at me while working on a back tooth with the nail of her pinky finger. Damn apples, she said after a moment. I'll only eat them because they're supposed to be good for you. She flicked a particle of apple peel across the room. Clues? What kind of clues? I said, I want to look at the medical file the woman Ronan brought in last night, the one who died. And why would that be? I want to find out how she died. Waller shrugged elaborately and glanced over at O'Grady. She OD'd on heroin. What's to find out? O'Grady gave me a hand. I'm afraid I've suggested there might be complicating factors, he said. We'd like to see if they ran any tests on the pharmacology or diagnosed any underlying health problems. This is just like another one of your scavenger hunts, said Waller. What do you think? I can go up to the ICU and ask them to hand over the file? Besides, they probably sent it to the coroners already. If the file is gone, then of course there's no help for it. But where's the harm in borrowing it for a short while if you find it's still there? I would regard it as a particular favor, Penny. It's the quickest way to restore me to my bar stool and get the great white detective out of both our cami knickers. He wouldn't be in my cami whatevers if you hadn't put him there. She stared at Ronan defiantly and then snapped her eyes over to me. Okay, I'll go look, but only because I have a soft spot for tall men with dark hair and pale complexions. O'Grady laughed. He said to me, I believe that was a reference to you. God gives all his creatures the means to get by. In your case, he's compensated for your lack of brains with an appearance that is inexplicably attractive to emergency room nurses. Penny Waller giggled and left the room. She came back a few minutes later carrying a pink file folder. Here it is. They were holding it for the results of some lab work they ordered last night. Came back too late to do her any good, I guess. She passed the file over to O'Grady. You can hang out here and read it. Don't even think of taking it out of the building. I've got to go back on duty, so when you're finished, drop it off with Ellen at the front desk. Thanks very much, I said. I doubt there's anything of interest, but I just felt like I had to touch all the bases. Waller nodded and put her hand out for me to shake. No problem. Maybe next time you play somewhere, you can invite me to come. I like jazz, as well as tall, pale men with dark hair. Done, I said, and shook her hand. 
my eyes in O'Grady's tractor shapely posterior out the door. Well, there you are, August, said O'Grady. You've made a new friend. I'd like her better if she didn't use her nail for a toothpick. Don't be getting above yourself. Penny Waller's a jewel of a girl. She's just a little earthy is all. O'Grady began thumbing through the file. I looked over his shoulder while he read, but I didn't get very much from what I saw. There was a page on top with handwritten notes. Below that were various forms with text printed by a computer, a long strip of graph paper with what I assumed was output from a heart and respiration monitor, and a log of some sort with annotations made every half hour. The last entry was made at 4.30 a.m. So, I said, what do you make of it? Well, I can tell you she died of a massive pulmonary edema. Basically, that means her lungs filled with fluid, and the resulting strain on her lungs and heart eventually did her in. It happens sometimes with heroin overdoses, although doctors don't really know why. Some people think it's triggered by the stuff they cut the heroin with, which is often quinine, and some people think it's caused by mixing heroin with other drugs, or even alcohol. Is there anything to show that there were other drugs in her system? It does appear she'd been drinking, at least. There's a test here that shows her blood alcohol level was 0.1% when she was admitted. Nothing that says she used coke or barbiturates, however. The best way to double-check would be to analyze the stuff left in the syringe, or run a urinalysis during the autopsy. They've also got some unused packets of drugs from her purse they could check. What about other health problems? You said something about a cardiopulmonary defect at the bar. Well, I don't see anything to indicate a problem like a bad heart valve. There's one little thing that's odd. They ran a blood test on her and her T-cell count is somewhat depressed. What does that mean? It means she might have had some sort of infection. The count is still above 500, which is not way out of whack, but it could still indicate the presence of a viral respiratory infection, bacterial pneumonia, or even TB. If she had any of those, it would definitely have contributed to the pulmonary edema. O'Grady stared down at the folder and seemed to drift off. What? I said. What are you thinking? I'm thinking that a low T-cell count can also be an indicator of HIV. You know that intravenous drug users are a high-risk group. Did they run an AIDS test on her? No, you can't do that without a patient's written permission. Since she never regained consciousness, they wouldn't have been able to get it. But I wouldn't want us to jump to conclusions. A T-cell count like that might indicate nothing more than a bad flu. And in the end, it's still secondary when it comes to determining the cause of death. To quote our friend Penny, She OD'd on heroin. What's to find out? I mulled that one over a bit. Okay, I'll throw in the towel. Her death just seemed a little too convenient. I guess I wanted to find some evidence of poison or other foul play. The only foul play around here, lad, is a continual lack of liquid refreshment. I suggest we repair to the nearest pub and remedy that situation post-haste. O'Grady and I left the hospital and walked up to Visadero to a bar in the corner at Pine. I split another pitcher with him, listening to the story of how he and his partner had a contest giving CPR to an 80-year-old man who'd been dead for 20 minutes by the time they got him strapped in the ambulance. The goal was to see who could drive the dead guy's pulse rate the highest on the ride to the hospital. O'Grady claimed he won by sending it to 200, which he said was twice as high as the guy ever got when he was alive. I left O'Grady in the company of Mr. Guinness for my appointment with Duckworth at around 9.30.
You have been listening to The Immortal Game, a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year. Find it in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Thank you.